Dear Lord Jesus, we ask right now that you would assist us mightily with your grace. Even as we look into your holy word, um, as we study our hearts, Lord, would you open up our eyes to see us as you'd see us, to see our lives in all of their entirety as you see them, um, seeing as they belong to you. We are yours, bought with your own precious blood, Lord Jesus. And so we ask now that you would come and be present in our midst for your glory's sake and in your name we ask. Amen. Well, I thought this morning that I would um, begin by giving you a portrait of two stewards. As if you hadn't, if you'd been at the 9 o'clock, maybe you didn't get enough Lord of the Rings. And so I thought I would give you another little bit of Lord of the Rings. You see, I'm going to give you a portrait of two stewards. The Lord Denethor, steward of Gondor from the Lord of the Rings versus Jim Elliott, Christian ministry, martyred by the Alcas in Ecuador. It's kind of no contest, but we're going to take a look anyway. You hear it all right? Gandalf! Gandalf! Yes, the white tree of Gondor, the tree of the king. Lord Denisor, however, is not the king. He is a steward only, a caretaker of the throne. son of Excelion, lord and steward of Gondor. I come with tidings in this dark hour, and with counsel. War is coming. The enemy is on your doorstep. As steward, you are charged with the defense of this city. Where are Gondor's armies? You still have friends. You are not alone in this fight. Send word to Theoden of Rohan. Light the beacons. You think you are wise, Mithrandir. Yet for all your subtleties, you have not wisdom. I know who rides with Theoden of Rohan. Oh, yes. Word has reached my ears this Aragorn, son of Arathorn. And I tell you now, I will not bow to this rager from the north, last of a ragged house long bereft of lordship. Authority is not given to you to deny the return of the king, steward. Sorry about the sound in that clip is really funny, but I think it's worth seeing anyway. And we're going to do, I'm just going to do a little bit of this next clip. Here you see the steward again. Can you sing, Master Hobbit? Well, yes. At least, well enough for my own people. But we have no songs for great halls and evil times. And why should your songs be unfit for my halls? Come, sing me a song. Home is behind the world. 
watch a little bit. Sorry about the orcs. I forgot to warn you about them. They're gross. Uh, one more. This is something, and now for something entirely different. We have one chance to reach these people. No one's ever made contact with these people and lived to talk about it. that was a trailer for um, for the um, for the film The End of the Spear which is kind of a low budget film but it's still really good I recommend it and it was um, made uh, about the story the true story of missionary Jim Elliott who was martyred in Ecuador along with the other male missionaries in their group in the 1950s and he's the, the husband of the famous Elizabeth Elliott if you've heard of any of her books as an evangelical. She's a wonderful evangelical teacher who died just a few years ago. Um, and you see, what was the, do you see a difference between the two, one is fictional, I know, but between the two characters, the two people, Lord Denethor versus Jim Elliot, what do you see that's different between the way they live their lives, between the way they even just feel about things? Any thoughts that you observe in watching that? Yeah, and it wasn't a fatalism. You know, you think some of those people, like people that have a death wish or a little bit, you know, those adventurers who will do anything without regard for their family. That was not the way Jim Elliott approached, um, approached the mission to the Alcos. Yeah, thank you. And Denethor was very inward focused in contrast to Jim who's outward focused. Anything else? I'm affected just by light and color. Did you see how dark and depressing the rich, wealthy hall of Lord Denethor was? 
how he was there. He was literally feasting. One of the beautiful things about, I love the books, through The Lord of the Rings, but one of the beautiful things about the movies is the direction, the way the director juxtaposes um, things that are happening simultaneously visually. Seeing he had just sent his um, last remaining son and all of their remaining cavalry out on this um, basically a suicide mission um, with this hope of regaining this outpost from their city. Um, and he's doing this out of pride, out of this idea of we can do it, we can, we can hold up, we can fight this horrible enemy in our own strength. And he sends out his only remaining son in that way. He, at the beginning you see him, he's depressed because he's already lost his eldest son. And in his... Um, in his ethos, I think there's a lot of this eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. He seems depressed, doesn't he? Why bother? Why bother living? Why bother asking for help? Um, it's all hopeless. He has no hope. And then we see differently the hope that Jim Elliott has is a very different hope. And his hope um, causes him to live radically, to live sacrificially in a way that brings glory to God, in a way that actually, if you were to see that movie, The End of the Spear, you'd find out the whole people group, the tribe in Ecuador, those Alca Indians who had been so, um, so violent towards any outsiders, they came to faith after that first round of missionaries was martyred by them. They came to faith every single one of the members of that tribe because the Lord worked powerfully in and through the remaining families to minister to them in Jesus' name. Um, Jim Elliott um, has this quote, obviously before he went to go and die in Ecuador, and before, you know, when they were going there, they said to each other, the men said, that they made a pact that they would not try to defend themselves if they were attacked. They would live out Jesus' commands to turn the other cheek um, in order to bring them to faith. Jim there was living by this quote that he said previously, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. What an amazing idea. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Well, there's someone in Scripture who lives in this way, in this radical, sacrificial way. There are a lot of people in Scripture. We're going to zero in on one person today. And you might have been able to guess who that would be based on the title that I chose for my class. Um, might given with mighty faith, you can tell that we're not doing a capital campaign, right? Because we're not saying, give big. <laughs> uh, might, if you recall, is the um, word that's used in the King James Version of this passage from Mark's Gospel, Mark 12, verses 41 through 44. Can someone who can see the screen, would you like to read this passage for the group? Read it aloud. Anyone? Any speakers? Okay, great. Don't mind me and the microphone coming your way. <laughs> you can just talk normally. I'll hold okay. yeah. All right. And Jesus sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had and all she had to live on. Thank you. What do you notice as we read this out loud, as you see it in front of you? What do you notice um, 
about the poor widow? What does she do? And how is it different than what other people are doing? Any thoughts? What do you notice? Steele, mm-hmm. I love and I love the word you use. She has complete abandonment of regard for herself in a blessed way, not in a degrading way. It's really in this. She is very consciously and carefully putting in her two cents, literally her two cents. This was not a tithe or a tax. This amount that she puts in was less than one one hundredth of a denarius which was the wage for one day of labor, and two denarii were the cost of the temple tax for each man. So that was a given. Every Jewish man had to put in um, uh, two denarii, a half shekel. Um, and yet, and that, was, that was involuntary. That was a tax, so it was required. Her giving is entirely different. Her giving is a voluntary gift, she is voluntarily putting in what she has, and it's really, as he says, they contribute out of their abundance, out of their surplus, after their needs are met. She, out of her poverty, has put in, denying her own comfort, she has put in everything she had, all that she had to live on. And Jesus here calls his disciples' attention to her gift. It's as though they're sitting there, right there in the court of the women, where there are all these places where you could put in your offering, in a little slot. And they had seen all sorts of people come by and um, very self-importantly, perhaps, put in their offering, very um, consciously waiting to see around them who's noticing. Check it out. Do you ever have that feeling if you don't have an envelope with you when you put money in the offering plate? Sometimes, depending on the denomination of the bill, I will fold it a certain way so that no one can see what it is, either because I'm afraid that they'll think it's too much and I'm feeling very proud of how much I'm putting in at that moment, or because I'm afraid that they'll see how little it is and judge me for it in the opposite direction. Well, Jesus here, she is totally unself-aware. Um, she is giving all of herself in abandon. She's not just giving all of her money. She's giving all of herself. And Jesus is calling attention to her in order to challenge his disciples to abandon the world's conventions of importance because, of the ma- because in God's eyes, the amount of her gift monetarily does not matter. It's nothing, really, compared with the gifts of others. What can that buy for the temple? What could that serve? What purpose does that serve? But God sees and God knows that the proportion of her income, the proportion that she gives, reflects the state of her heart. Her devotion causes her to give at such great personal cost. And she gives with such faith. Wow, I'd love to have faith like that, wouldn't you? you know, there was when I was church planting before I came to Birmingham. I don't know if you know this, but I was church planting in Massachusetts, and um, we were—I was involved in all the daily runnings of our little organization. Um, and one of the things that I was aware of—thank goodness I'm not aware of this here at the Advent—I knew when there had been a gift given by someone, 
And I found myself getting annoyed because there was one person in particular who every week would give a gift that was dollars and cents, and it was such a small gift, you know. And I would, you know, we would have to, it wasn't me that went to deposit at the bank, thank goodness, that would be a conflict. But it was still kind of a pain in the neck. Every week we've got to go and deposit $8.57 or however much it was. And the Lord convicted me about my annoyance about it because I realized that the numbers were what they were, not because she had chosen them to be what they were, but she was calculating a percentage of her income, and her income was an hourly income, and it was different every week. And so that's why it was such a strange number. And that's why it was somewhat inconvenient to go to the bank. And then I just asked the Lord for forgiveness because I thought, woe is me. Because I'm naysaying this woman who is giving so freely, so willingly, so voluntarily, proportionally, gladly, even. Well, on um, the famous biblical scholar we love, Alan Ross, who's actually here at Beeson in Birmingham, he has four principles of stewardship, and I'm not going to go through all of them for you, but it's helpful just to see that she, this little widow, is embodying all four of them. She gives, believing that everything belongs to God and that he will provide for her, even if she gives him her last two cents. She gives um, not um, the worst of what she has or the last of what she has. She gives the first and the best of what she has. In fact, all of what she has. She gives proportionately. She gives not a number, but a percentage and a percentage that is not limited by a ceiling. And finally, she gives spiritually, far more important to God than the dollar amount or the percentage even, is the state of the heart of the giver. And this is where she is. And it might be very daunting for us today to even look at this and to say, well, this, there's no way this is me. How could this ever be me, even? Why even would I want to give sacrificially? Well, that was Alan Ross's very articulate principles. I'm going to give us four little reasons why, and then hopefully they're pretty accessible. Number one, why give sacrificially like the widow? Well, it's smart. Jesus said in uh, Matthew 6, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures, in heaven, uh, treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. With this in mind, Randy Alcorn has a great quote that I just love. So I'm going to read it also to you. According to Jesus, storing up earthly treasures isn't simply wrong. It's just plain stupid. Jesus argues from the bottom line, like any good financial planner. It's not an emotional appeal. His appeal is a logical one. Invest in what has lasting value. No one can serve two masters. Oh, that's going on to the next one. Excuse me. But isn't that a great quote? Um, this idea of it being smart, of um, investing in the kingdom, investing with forward thinking, looking at eternity and not just at this life. So it's smart, number one. Number two, um, sacrificial giving is actually good for us. And here's another quote from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount for why it's good for us. Jesus said, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. 
You cannot serve God and money. Mammon, which is the Greek word for the money used in this um, chapter of Matthew, mammon is a useful servant. It's helpful, and God doesn't want us to not deal with it. That's what's hard about it. We can't just say, well, I'm going cold turkey. I'm going to quit money altogether. (laughs) Just like um, someone who's addicted to something else might quit it altogether, and that's actually easier than having to still live with it in your life. No, we can't give up money um, totally, but the idea is to get to a place where money is a useful servant instead of dominating us like a cruel master. Um, So one question is, do you possess your possessions or do they possess you? I think about this all the time. I moved to Birmingham with a little tiny pod. It was like the smallest size pod you could move with because I had a little tiny apartment in Leverett, Massachusetts. And when I moved, um, I found myself like a hermit crab now in a much bigger shell. And oh, believe me, I have grown to fill it. There's not enough closet space in the world for me. And I realized this, and I, and I can't stop myself sometimes with it. And I also, um, so I try to give away clothes. If I buy clothes, I give away clothes. If I bring something new into the house, I take something out of it because there just isn't enough room. And I don't want to grow to fit a bigger space. I don't need to. I don't want my possessions to possess me. John Wesley has a great quote about this, about why giving is good for us. When I have money, he writes, I get rid of it quickly, lest it find a way into my heart. Well, giving radically, giving generously beyond what you're able is a remedy of sorts for making wealth into an idol. And Wesley lived this out. I'm not going to read this whole quote, but you can see it. Wesley, um, early on in his life, he learned to live only off of 28 pounds a year. I don't think he was necessarily tightening his belt. It was just what he was living off of. And then as he grew in fame, as he ministered um, even further afield, he began to earn more money. But he determined not to grow like a hermit crab into a bigger size shell. He just stayed at that same mark. He continued to live only on 28 pounds so that then he had more surplus to give away to the poor. By the end of his life, he was earning as much as 1,400 pounds, living off of 28 and continuing to give the rest away to the church and away to the poor. What a way to live. And we might not think, well, we might not think that we're rich to give generously and to give sacrificially. We might not think that we have much of a surplus. Um, And one of those questions and one of those ideas to think about is that wealth is a moving target. Are we rich? Um, Andy Stanley's book, How to Be Rich, is great for talking about this. He quotes a Gallup poll which says that for each and every person at all different income levels, being rich was simply defined as having double their current income. So, for example, Gallup would ask someone earning $50,000 a year and ask them what rich looked like to them. And they said, ah, about $100,000 a year. And on and on and on up to those earning $10 million a year who said, well, I'm not really rich yet. I really think $20 million a year. That Then I would be actually rich. And um, Andy Stanley, I commend to you his book, he tries to whittle us back to a new perspective where we realize how wealthy we are in terms of the world standards. He said, basically, if you're making $30,000 a year in the United States, 
compared to the rest of the world, you are actually rich. And so how do we allow this wealth not to dominate us, not to take us along for a ride? How do we let the tail actually wag in back instead of wagging us as the dog? Um, Well, Andy Stanley has some great cute words. He talks about giving as a priority, first and foremost, giving as a percentage of our income, and giving progressively more, just like John Wesley, over the course of our lives, instead of giving as an afterthought. Oh, yeah, thank you, God. Sure, here's this round figure. A fixed amount um, that never changes, um, or that's just based on how we're feeling in the moment, or that's very inactive and passive, um, where we feel, again, almost dominated by the idea of giving, and we just very quickly sure, here, whatever, without thinking very intentionally about it. So why do we give sacrificially one more word before I turn it over to our next point and to Todd Liscombe? And that is essentially that um, giving is this remedy for idolatry. Again, back to Randy Alcorn. He talks about basic physics, and I love this image. He talks about matter moving in the universe. Remember how um, different bodies of matter, bodies of lighter matter, will orbit around bodies of greater matter. So we have all these satellites orbiting around our Earth. We have the moon orbiting around our Earth. Our Earth is lighter in weight than the sun, and so we, like the other planets, move around the sun. Well, Randy says, it's a matter of basic physics. The greater the mass, the greater the hold that mass exerts. The more things we own, The greater their total mass, the more they grip us, setting us in orbit around them. And then finally, like a black hole, they suck us in. It's a little bit where Denethor is, right, at the beginning. He's sucked into despair. He's sucked into thinking there's no more than this. He's sucked into enjoying simply the pleasures of this life without a view towards the end goal and the end picture. Well, Randy says, giving changes all of that. It breaks us out of orbit around our possessions. We escape their gravity. Um, We enter into a new orbit now around our treasures in heaven. One idea about this was when I was in New York studying acting, there was a young woman actually from the South, she went to Swanee, who was in my acting class. We were just chit-chatting one day, and I was very young, I was 22. I went straight from college to New York, and she was a little bit older, and she had already had a career in graphic design. When she heard my story, she looked at me and she said, oh, you're lucky. I thought, what do you mean, I'm lucky? She said, well, you haven't had the burden of having the golden handcuffs. I'd never had a salary. And so living off of what I could straight together, waiting tables, um, paying New York City rent, paying for classes, um, that life did not seem like a hardship for me. It seemed like a joy. It seemed worth it. The adventure that I was on was far more um, worth having than the, um, the extra surplus that would make my life just a little bit more comfortable. And she had missed out on that. She had gone in the reverse direction and had had to downsize. She said it was actually hard for her because as much as she wanted to pursue acting, she still missed what she remembered she had when she had a very good um, salary, an extra surplus. So there's this idea, not only is it good for us, but it also invites us. By giving, we are invited to be on God's big adventure uh, with him, giving sacrificially, waiting to see, just like that adventure of pursuing acting in New York. 
Well, Todd is going to talk about, um, I've grouped this under our third, um, my third little point, which is that giving, sacrificial giving brings us joy. And he's going to look at First Chronicles chapter 29. And while I'm doing that, these are two of the books that she yeah. refers to. Thank you. The Treasure Principle and Be Rich, both of which are in the, uh, the bookstore. Yeah. And uh, this is, Randy's a little heavier, uh, I say. Yeah. And Andy's a little entry point, excellent. Like, after you read this one, you'll probably want to read this one. Does that make sense? Um, this is a little step-based. You know, Randy's kind of like seven things of. Um, but this reminds me of the two slides ago that Deborah said about um, this black hole. It reminds me of a riddle. What do you put in a bucket filled with water to make it lighter? A hole. <laughs> so in other words, if the bucket is so full, I got all my stuff, right? No, my stuff, the way to make that lighter is put a hole in it. What can you add to it? You can use that. It's great. I just heard it yesterday, so see, I'm passing it on. There you go. And that's uh, perfect timing. So to go into First Chronicles 29, uh, just look at that for a moment. Have you ever said that before? Bingo. 52 weeks a year, 40 weeks a year, 30 weeks a year, whatever. Right? Okay. Have you really ever thought about what that means, though? If you're like me, there's many things in the service you just kind of say and they just kind of fall out of your head, off your tongue. You just don't really. But then you could stand next to someone who really says it emphatically. You ever done that? It's like, wow. Like a, a person who's a really good singer, you go, oh, I heard it differently. Uh, all things, not just some, not a few, not half of them, but all things come from him. So the idea from Alan Ross's first perspective is it's all his anyway. It's not mine. I got a real problem with that. I don't know if you all do. I think you're bold enough to show up today to hear Deborah and I in the midst of Wesley Hill, who's phenomenal, of course. Not that Deborah's not. Um, but we have me every week. But you yeah, that's right. That's right. Go listen to his audience. Yeah. Um, do you want me just to hit the next yeah, button? Hit the hit next, the next zero and you'll right get Okay. This is the verse before that. Okay. I gave you 14b. Now this is the verse... But you, but who am I, and what is my people, that we should be able thus to offer willingly? Now, if you don't know much about First Chronicles 29, this is when David has asked the Lord a number of times, I want to build you a temple, because you're living in a tent, and I'm living in a palace. And he, he asked it many times, and the Lord says, David, we're not going to go there. Your son's going to do that for me. Okay, your son Solomon is going to do that for me. David, in the meantime, begins to... Um, put a large amount of space with stuff to prepare for the resources, the materials necessarily build it. He's not going to build it, but he's gathering the materials to be able to do it. Okay? And what's powerful about his statement before this is if you combine the two together, notice the word willingly. The ability to offer willingly. If some of you are in management or you've managed people, Sometimes you ask two questions. Are they able or are they willing? And most people that you want to hire are willing, not able. Because you can teach them how to be able. Notice the word willingness here now twice. Okay, Offer willingly in such a way that you look at this verse. This is verse 3 through 5, which is prior to, of course, 14. 
This is the amount that David is giving. Notice 3,000 talents of gold, 7,000 talents of refined silver. Now that may not mean much to us because it's just a number. But let me add some depth to it for you. The terms of how much that is, is 110 tons of gold. That's a lot. That's like more than this room of gold. Okay, the 7,000 talents would be then how much, you think? Like 260 tons of silver. This is just David's at this point, okay? So think about the enormity of that. The space that he would need to be able to do that, okay? Which then takes us to this next verse, or the next verse, the picture. This is Solomon's temple. Now, before you get nervous, Deborah and I aren't here to ask you to help build Solomon's temple. <laughs> We're not asking for anything. We're not asking for anything. That's not part of it. But most people don't realize the size of the temple. Does anybody know how this relates to the size of a football field? It is football season. It's about two-thirds the length of a football field. You know how high it is? 16 stories. Okay, we're not talking about a small thing. We're talking about the building next door across the street. So the amount of materials, I know a couple guys in here in construction, is huge. And notice the gold inlay on the inside. This is what David is using his gold for. He specifically wanted it to be used on the inlay. Now, the advent is not a temple. What we understand is what is the temple? Bingo. The people now are the temple. We, all of us at the Advent, all of us in Christianity are the temple. It's not a building. Again, I don't mean to say heresy to those at the Advent. The building's wonderful. But if you think about David's prayer beforehand, this is verse 6 and 7, where then other people gave after David. In other words, David started it. And look at here, the leaders and the fathers of the houses, the, the tribes, the commanders, the officers, look how much they gave. Much more. 5,000 talents is equivalent to then how much? Like 150 tons, right? Um, 10,000 derricks of gold, that's actually a different weight, so it's, it's actually different, so don't pay attention. But 10,000 talents of silver. Look at how many talents of iron. That's 3,750 tons of iron. Okay, now I know that sounds enormous, but let's think about the prayer that David said in the midst of this. Matthew, will you please read verses 10 through 13 of 1 Chronicles. I gave you 14. I've given you a little bit of the text of 3 through 8. Now the prayer that David says right in the middle. Therefore David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly. And David said... Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and give strength to all. Now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. Thank you, Matthew. So now consider verse 9, which is before what he just read. Notice, willingly with a whole heart, and then go back to 14. Hopefully what Deborah and I have done is just opened up. You know, it's not something we talk about very often. 
So thank you for being here to allow us to stretch you to think. Because that's really the whole idea of what we're trying to accomplish. Absolutely. Okay. Thank you, John. There is this idea of it being freely offered. They did not have to offer this offering. They did not have to give. And we also, as Christians, we don't have to give. We don't have to give. Every time we have stewardship, someone it feels as though someone's saying, you have to give. God does not say to us, you have to give. He has given everything to us. We get to give. And it's a part of the response to what it is that what uh, um, to what it is that he has done for us. Anyone ever hear um, that phrase, um, the cheerful giver? God loves a cheerful giver. I hate that phrase because it's always used manipulative. I know I did just say that out loud. I love the Bible. I love your word, Lord. I hate it when human beings take that phrase out of context as a prod to get people to open up their wallets. That is not the way that the Lord and that is not the way that Paul are using it in 2 Corinthians 9. And we're not going to get into it today, but I'd encourage you to take this home and look at it and read it for yourself. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart. Um, Again, it's up to the Holy Spirit to move our hearts to give. And that is the only way in which we can give cheerfully. Indeed, in 2 Corinthians 9, Paul is underlining that the gift is not actually what we're giving. The gift is Jesus Christ. The gift and the gift of grace is Jesus Christ himself. This giving just happens in verse 13 because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution. Um, Well, it's all because, if you go back down to 14, it's all because of the surpassing grace of God upon upon you. And that goes back to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Just before that, Paul begins starting it, start to start to talk about money in chapter 8. And we have this great verse that sums it all up for us. Um, as we're preparing to give, as we're asking God, how much would you like us to give? Um, we know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. God gives grace to us in Jesus Christ. God is the one taking action on our behalf to justify and redeem us. In giving all of ourselves and all that we have in return back to him, we're simply responding. We're putting all of our chips into the center of the table and we're saying, I'm all in. One last image of someone who's all in before I pray. This is my niece. And she's the youngest of four. And my sister's very easygoing, thank goodness. This little girl, Violet, is all in. She jumps into the water with both feet, and you have to go get her because she doesn't know how to swim. She got into the butter the other day and smeared it all over the kitchen. I was not a child like that because it was so messy and gross I couldn't get involved. She's all in. She plunges right in, head first, gets the butter everywhere, and she's having the time of her life. She put all of her chips all in. She's going for it. And that's part of what God delights to bring us along to the place where we can do that in response to him. Well, let's pray. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for your willingness to be all in for us, to bring us back into relationship with you and with the Father. We thank you, Lord, for the forgiveness of sins bought with your own precious blood when we didn't have any currency religiously to offer, to pay, to atone for our sins. 
And so now we just receive. And we ask, Lord, that you would give us that freedom from our possessions, the freedom from the stuff of this life, that they would orbit around us and not us around them, that we would orbit around you and give all of what we have to you and prayerfully to give financially as you lead us by the power of your Holy Spirit. And we ask this in your name, Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.